Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm so thrilled this week to bring you my conversation with Ed Sin, founder of Bolstart Ventures, which started in 2010 in New York and focuses on being a day one partner for founders. While Bolstar today is almost $500 million in assets under management and has invested in companies like SNCC, Customer, Big ID, and Superhuman, it had a very modest beginning with only a million dollars as part of their first fund in 2010. Ed is one of my favorite people to talk to as not only does he bring 25 years in investing experience, but I also found him to be one of the most humble, thoughtful, and insightful investors out there. And we had such a great time talking about the market, the history of Bolstrom and how he thinks about taking early stage risk. So without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey Ed, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey Samir, thank you for having me. So let's go back. You know, you and I were talking about this before the show. Both of us had been in venture for a very long time. I had realized it's been a quarter of a century for you stemming back to 96. But tell us a little bit about what got you so excited about getting in venture at a time where we were internet 1.0, there wasn't a lot of venture at the time. What really inspired your move into uh, full-time investing? Yeah, so uh, after college, I was working at JP Morgan um, in their structured derivatives group, and I was helping build quantitative trading models. And I became you know, pretty deep into Excel <laughs> to the point where I was learning how to code. I learned Visual Basic like most people. I'd record the macros and reverse engineer them and look at them and change the variables and eventually just learn how to code. And basically, I automated my job, uh, which was being a glorified data entry analyst. I downloaded Mosaic Browser in like 95, and I had to grab some data uh, from JP Morgan's kind of website, you know, downtown. And I was like, holy crap, this is absolutely unbelievable. The world's information could be at your fingertips. And I learned about venture capital in college because one of my friend's brothers uh, was in VC and said, hey, it's, it's awesome. It's like the equivalent of being a player coach. Um, in the sense that, you know, you can coach a number of companies, but then if you need to play, which means getting heavily involved, you can go in and play. Uh, and I just love the idea of uh, partnering with founders, which, you know, who had an idea and just seeing that idea come to life. And so th- those are all the reasons why. And, and frankly, I'm really lucky, you know, entering the business, you know, uh, in 1996. And I remember you had this interesting opportunity, cost. I think it was like 98, 99, where you could have gone to Harvard Business School, but ultimately... You decided to join uh, Bob Lesson, who was out of Smith Barney in Don Treader Ventures. What did you see at that point? And tell us a little bit about the internal calculus, because you could have gone down and done Harvard Business School. And I remember back then, I mean, most VCs were either going there or they're going to a place like Stanford. Why did you decide to go in? 98 was actually a pretty interesting time. And of course, the implosion two years later. So it was pretty clear. It's funny. First of all, um, 1998 was just when the market w- was peaking. And you're right, every single VC uh, around had either gone to Stanford or Harvard Business School. And that would have punched my ticket two years there. And I would have gone kind of moved to the West Coast. I remember my mom, you know, we're immigrants. Uh, my parents are from Korea, my dad from North Korea, my mom, South Korean. And my mom just lost her mind when I made the, de- the decision. She said, Eddie, two Harvards better than one. Get as many Harvards as possible. She was kind of like, what are you doing? And Bob told me, Bob goes, Ed, I got both degrees. And he goes, the second one is useless. He goes, come join me, be my partner, run the shop with me. And he goes, this is the greatest time of you know wealth creation and opportunity in history. And look, if we mess up, if you and I mess up, 
you can always go back to school one or two years later. So that that was what I kind of took with. He's like, come join me. Let's do this thing together. And that was it. So that, that was the calculus. It was more the opportunity cost of giving up kind of the, you know, having a front row seat into history. And a lot of those things that I saw and learned in terms of companies going very fast on the way up and coming down even quicker are things that I carry with kind of till today as well. You did that for a long time with Bob and ultimately launched Bolstart in 2010. And I remember 2010 and, you know, I have friends that live in New York and it was early days of New York tech. And there were a few firms that were forming and folks like Roger Ehrenberg and IA Ventures around that time. Your first fund was pretty small. It was a million dollars, I believe. And it was a proof of concept. What was that proof of concept that you were looking to solve for? What was the hypothesis? And how much of that was instructed by your time at Don Treader? I think first, all of it was instructed by my time at Don Treader. And what we did there is we led seed and A rounds in enterprise software companies and technical founders. And um, I would say that at the time that I started thinking about both service pie in like 2008, when I knew that we weren't going to raise a new fund, right? I mean, that last Dawn Treader fund was raised in 2001 and started investing a lot in 2001. So there's so many lessons learned kind of going through the probably the worst period in technology history. And, um, you know, towards the tail end of that, we we're exiting Green Plum, which eventually became Pivotal Software. We'd sold, you know, go to meeting in 2004, 2005. A lot of these founders kept coming back and saying, hey, there's this thing that Amazon launched called EC2, Elastic Compute. And um, with that and open source, I truly don't need $5 million to get my company started. I just need a million dollars or $2 million to start. And there's no one that will write checks. And more importantly, on the East Coast, let's just say out of the out of the New York area, there's no one in the East Coast really writing you know, 100, 200, 500 day checks at the time. If you look at the initial pre-money of all of our companies, there are three to four million pre-money in 2010. Believe it or not, so you know you're getting decent stakes for 100k, 150k uh, chunks, and the proof for us was very simple. We wanted to be not only the best New York enterprise seed fund, but the best enterprise kind of partner for founders on day one. That was it. We wanted to invest pre-product. We wanted not to rely on social proof, but rely more on kind of who the founders were, their backgrounds, their judgment, um, their understanding of product, and the unique insight they're bringing to the table, and see if we could find. 10 founders that were willing to kind of take our money. And the second thing we try to do is, you know, obviously we're not leading those deals, was to figure out what one value add thing could we do on that cap table so that the founders always remembered us down the line. And that that was really the proof of concept for Fund One. And just just to fast forward that two years later in 2012, I didn't know if this was going to be a thing. I was, you know, getting recruited by some West Coast firms to be the solo New York partner. And as you know, Samir, it can be nice to be be one of those people, but being one of 10 partners at a large firm and being the only New York person didn't really resonate with me. I, I just kind of think of myself as a founder and I just didn't seem like it would be the right situation. And we ended up getting four exits in 2012 alone. Um, and we're like, hmm, you know, it's like, maybe we can, maybe we can take this one step further. So th that was the genesis and kind of how we've migrated along to where we are today. I love the analogy to being a founder because I've, I've worked with a lot of emerging managers over the last 11 years. And fundamentally, I've always said you're running a company that happens to be an investment firm. And there's so much that goes into it that is not necessarily the stuff that's highlighted. Everyone thinks about investing. Everyone thinks about all the cool stuff you can do with founders, but there's so much more that goes into uh, building a firm. You were within a firm and effectively running a firm at Don Treader, ultimately started bolster with a hypothesis of what you were going to be, realized 
hey, this is kind of working in 2012, now raising more capital, perhaps bringing people on. Tell us a little bit about firm building. In the early days, did you have a clear sense of what the plan was going to be and how you build a firm, both from a team perspective, but also ensuring that you can bring on the right type of limited partners to really capitalize on the opportunity that you saw? So I'll be dead honest with you. Raising capital is almost next to impossible for us. You know, this is coming out two years after the, uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers uh, in 2008. New York was a, a shit show, to be honest with you. And then people are saying, hey, not only do you want to be the first, you know, enter- you know, first person on the cap table, but you also want to be enterprise and you're based out of New York. How are you going to invest in companies all over the country, if not outside the country, out of New York? And New York wasn't even proven that. So raising capital to us, Samir, was I didn't even you know think about kind of the firm building because it was just me and Elliot. We didn't even hire our first you know kind of analyst until like 2016. So just Elliot and I scraping by for six years. You know we took no salary the first two years. We were investing money out of our own pocket to try to make this thing work, and um, we we got no you know people said no to us five thousand times at least. You know lots of lunches, lots of dinners. Traditionally, the people that would invest in these things are not institutions, but they would be like hedge fund folks. And you can imagine, you know, all those folks were feeling a little poor those days. So frankly, it was, it wasn't about firm building. It was how do we actually, you know, raise our our, our money and and get this moving. So the first two funds were absolutely brutal. What did you think was the turning point? And part of it's the economy got better and better as we uh, got further away from 2009 and 2010. Was it the exits? Was there something else that LPs were looking at, particularly the institutional ones? that they pointed to and said, okay, Ed and team or Ed in particular being the only person has something very unique about what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, honestly, fund three. So fund two ended up being a, having a $10 million first close in 2013. We added, you know, like eight portfolio companies and then added another six, six and a half million. So, you know, above our target of 15 and that was kind of our 2013 fund. And then by 2015, we had a couple of nice write-ups in those funds. And we set out to raise a $30 million fund with a $20 million first close. So we're always kind of having that little step up. You know, that first close was always bigger than the whole size of the last fund was kind of the way we were doing things. And um, frankly, that took us 18 months to get fund three kind of raised. Uh, We got the first $20 million just from a lot of our existing fund two investors who are mostly individuals. And, you know, uh, I don't know if my one of my LPs, it's, it's a family office that a pretty well-known family office, but they like me to keep them quiet. They came in for six million of the twenty million in the first close, and then you know, fifteen, seventeen months later, I had been talking to top-tier capital since we started the firm. So I had known Lisa Edgar for a very long time, and finally, she's like, "I'm ready to do this." She's like, "The one stipulation though is, uh, is if I invest seven million into your, you know, your fund, I want you to raise more than more than thirty. So we ended up with forty-seven million, and then you know, the other early family office investor who's still with us today and one of our largest investors stepped up from six to 22 million. So that that was kind of those two partners really put us on the map. They, they had the confidence in us. They saw the early signs of the portfolio that we're building. And, you know, frankly, the other thing that was misunderstood about us was that they thought we we're a New York only firm. We were, we were investing in companies in Canada and London even back then. Two is um, we we're really enamored with infrastructure software, with developer software, infrastructure software. And a lot of that came from my experience having done uh, Greenplum, you know, which ended up becoming Pivotal Software. It was one of the first you know, transformational cloud-native kind of public IPOs that was out there. 
We also, you know, I also invested in some open source projects personally. Uh, one was this, believe it or not, hybrid cloud computing uh, company called Eucalyptus Software, which was an open source play for hybrid cloud back in, I don't know, 28, 29. You know, Benchmark came in, NEA came in. We had Martin Mikos, the CEO, at one point in time from MySQL. We were just way too early. But a lot of that for us was, you know, investing in infra. And that was misunderstood by a lot of people as well back in, you know, 2015. So that's how we ended up on the map with that. And, you know, that was still a struggle, right? 18 months to get closed on $47 million. So, you know, end of 2016 was, was when we announced it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you a stat from what we looked at recently and the average time to raise a first time fund. And it's still close to 18 months, just underneath that. And of course, a lot of that is because there's not a lot of capital that's willing to take the risk that early on a manager when the proof points are so limited. And it does remind me a little bit about your model of investing in some cases before any code has been written and before it's even evident that there's a real business. The thing that I really wanted to post to you is how do you get comfortable just from a mental model standpoint, investing that early and are there certain things that you do to help mitigate some of the risks of going so early? Yeah, I remember uh, when we were with Rahul uh, from Superhuman, we had funded his first company as well, Reportive, which eventually sold to LinkedIn. And uh, I remember sitting with him when we were coming up with a tagline for our firm back um, you know, at the end of Fund 3. And he looks at Elliot and he goes, courage and conviction. He said, you have the courage to fund me to try to back up the truck before I even have anything started. And you have the conviction to do it very quickly without any, you know, any social proof from anyone else. And finally, to write the big check, and you know that that kind of you know, and I would say that the experience comes from just having done this. I mean, when I funded GoToMeeting and LivePerson and and even Green Plum, there there was no product; it was founder. So it was really about the courage and conviction and our own belief in picking founders and having the experience of success, you know, from history, and saying, you know what, we can't get everyone right, but even if we get a few right and we own enough. And we are the, we'll call it the lowest entry price on the cap table, right? Irrespective of kind of where the market is and what the rounds look like. We think we can create a very compelling opportunity to, to create value for our um, investors. Not to mention, honestly, I'll be dead honest with you, Samir. It's just like the founders. This is the stage we enjoy the most. There's nothing better as an investor. And I like to use the word less as an investor, but partner. than partnering with a founder, being that first check, believing in them the way that some of our LPs believed in us. And, you know, that relationship that you build with these founders through the ups and downs, um, I, think, I would say it's transformative. And if you look at kind of our NPS score, you know, many of these founders have come back for a second kind of uh, swing with us. We're the first ones they call. We work with them. I mean, Rahul Guy from Sneak, which is now an $8.5 billion company, we funded his first company, Blaze.io, out of Fund One. And, you know, every quarter we kept calling him saying, hey, when are you starting your next thing? And we would share ideas with him. He'd write some angel checks with us. And finally, he's like, I got these three ideas. I was like, guy, you know what? Those first two are okay, but the third one, I'll give you a check today. And so those are the, are the founders and the relationships that we build. And that's where we get the confidence because we, we've done it before and we feel very confident that we can do it. And frankly, there's less competition um, because of what you just said, Samir. If we go inside baseball... And look at some of the uh, the deals that you have done. And of course, there's going to be a smattering of deals that don't work and, the, and a smattering that do work. And when they work, the impact on the fund is humongous because you have so much ownership and you're staying with those companies. 
are there any common trends or I should say characteristics that may be non-obvious that you look back on those companies and said they had these different variables that all got us comfortable? And what type of pattern recognition have you developed looking at some of those things in the past? Something we think about all the time. And as you know, pattern recognition also is meant to be broken. So you always have to be careful of not relying too much on the past and having an open mind to the future. I'll say one thing is that these are all technical founders, right? So uh, two is that many of these companies are born out of a pain that they've experienced. And since they are technical founders, they want to build something to solve that pain themselves. So they're not in it for the money. They're passionate about solving a problem. You know, just the way that any investor, the way that you started your firm, you started because you have a, you saw a gaping problem in the market. You've been in the business for 20 years, but that's kind of what we look for. I would also say that all these founders were non-obvious in the sense that they weren't the founders that your traditional Silicon Valley VCs would say, I want to fund these people, you know, and every story of, you know, let's say right now we have out of the 20 investments uh, in fund three that we kind of led, we have four unicorns uh, out of, out of 20, that's 2015, you know, we're the first investor on the board, still on the board, you know, have nice ownership in these companies, but all four of them, there's a story around each founder and why people wouldn't fund it, why the traditional folks wouldn't fund it for two or three years. You know, there's Dimitri and Nimrod from Big ID, you know, where they have this platform for data privacy. We funded it before data privacy was a thing. He, had, he They struggled to raise capital for the first two years. Um, and we backed uh, and invested two more times before they even had their A round. And the transformative opportunity for them was when they were at RSA Innovation Sandbox, which is a preeminent security conference presenting, um, you know, for the best startup. And Mark Zuckerberg was testifying in front of Congress that day about privacy. And, and Dimitri and Nimrod won. And after that, the world changed, everything changed, and money just kept pouring in. You know, uh, the last announced round was, I think, at 1.25 post earlier this year. But yeah, those first two years were a struggle. A sneak guy, uh, you know, was pushing this idea of developer-friendly security, but his first product was around open source uh, security. And people are like, yeah, that's not a big enough market. And guess what? That allowed us to partner with Guy and write two more checks after our initial check before he had his A round, which is more like a B. Um, so once again, you know, those are the deep relationships that were built. Same with uh, Block Damon. Constantine went through seven rounds. He ba- basically built the Heroku for blockchain. It was one platform to connect to 25 different protocols and keep adding more. Their, their most recent round, which I assume this podcast won't be put, published for like the next month or so, but the most recent round was at 1.25 posts. But they had seven seed rounds to even get there. So, and, and that's at a B round. So imagine that's a B round. So once again, no one wanted to fund it. No one believed in the opportunity. It was way too early. And customer, the final thing was customer. The two founders, Brad and Jeremy, had tremendous customer support experience. But um, you know, if you did diligence on them, they sold their last company, Sisley, to Salesforce. These two founders were the technical co-founders on the East Coast, while the company was based on the West Coast. And none of the Silicon Valley VCs in the early days could, could reference them because like, I don't know who these two people are. So once again, if we can spot those underdogs, but have that ability to build a product and launch a product, I think that we can, you know, that's the pattern that we really love and that we can work with these founders and, and help them build something big. It occurs to me as you were going through some of these companies and these founders, a lot of them were people that you worked with in the past, maybe with their first company, but for somebody coming into venture with a cold start and maybe not having those existing relationships with non-obvious founders, 
how do you actually spot these non-obvious founders? Because by very definition, they're not obvious. They might be in locations that no one is thinking about. How did you go about building that from the beginning? Well, yeah, I was fortunate that I already had a history of kind of a founding um, group of founders that I've worked with. Because at the end of the day, Samir, you know, the the ethos of our firm is is serve the founders. Um, because right now, that ultimately there's more capital than there are great founders to um, to deploy that capital. To be honest with you, you know, those founders I think also have become our friends um, through the years. And that was another thing that was told to me when I started ventures: don't become friends with your founders. Frankly, I love being friends with my founders. And actually, the definition of a good friendship is where you can challenge a friend and say, you know what? That's not you, man. That, 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 is, that is, you're not being you. You're too distracted. Like, step up, right? I mean, that's what good, that's what good friendships are versus bad friendships where you're only there for the, for the good times when you're a fair weather friend. So we've developed friendships. And I can't even tell you how many of our deals, about 85% of our kind of opportunities come from existing founders or the people that work for them. And by being very involved from the very beginning and being that first check, they want you to win just as much as they want to win. And they want to share their friends with you because if you've done well by them, we're going to see a lot of, a lot of the, their new friends starting companies. And by the way, if you're involved and join the board and interviewing the VPs, those VPs have friends too. They go off and spawn. So if you could start with one company and maybe take a bet on one founder who's an underdog and all of a sudden they, they experience a little success, that halo effect kind of passes on and passes on to the point where like, oh my gosh, you're invested in this company and you're there at the very beginning. And now we have a relationship with 30 or 40 people at each of our companies and they send us all their friends. And that is where our flow comes from. But I would advise someone to pick one, find one underdog, take a bet on that person, build a really good relationship. And guess what? Maybe that first one is not going to be a big exit. I'd rather them have a small exit and get a little bit of money on the table because the next one they do is going to be way bigger than the first one with all the lessons that they learned. Yeah, and we've seen that multiple times. And Twitter is a great example of Evan and the prior version of Odeo being the podcast company. As you think about how this instructs things like portfolio construction, because I, you know, if you look at the vast majority of investors, most would agree that the place that you can make the most money is when you're betting on something that is not obvious. And you're right. But it also puts you at risk of betting on something that is non-obvious and being wrong, which is a scary place to be. And so what often happens with a lot of investors, especially early on, is they bet in, bet into trends, they bet on momentum, they bet on things that are obvious, and it de-risks things a little bit because you know that follow-on capital is going to be there and likely to follow with, with markups. In a lot of your cases, and you brought up one that's gone through seven rounds of seed financing, how do you think about betting on non-obvious where it may take a while for those companies and those founders to attract traditional Series A, Series B capital? Is there anything different about your portfolio construction model versus other funds? I wouldn't say there's anything different. I, just, I think it's just kind of how we do it, how we consistently go in early. I'll give you a stat. We just did some analysis. I've got my AGM tomorrow, so I had to go through all of this. But 75% of our investments in Fund 3, Vintage 2015, um, were at company formation. In Fund 4, uh, which was Vintage 2018 to 2020, 80% uh, of that was at company formation. In Fund 5, which is vintage uh, technically this year, we've, we've been at a pretty fast and furious pace. We've had 11 portfolio companies. Now it's four of us investing instead of two. That's 82% um, at company formation. 
So, so we do have a philosophy that we've had from the very beginning is to be there at the very beginning of these companies. It's easier to you know get the ownership that you want to if you're kind of there and have the conviction and lead the round versus kind of be a follower of a round, number one. Um, so our view is this, is that every one of the companies in our 20-company portfolio, so we've gotten it down to science now. Fund two, we had 29 portfolio companies with a smaller fund, and we ran out of, and we thought we would do 50% upfront 50% pro rata. Guess what? Our failure rate was much lower than we thought it would. So there's lots of pro rata. We blew through the pro rata so fast. Fund three, uh, our, our perspective was one third, two thirds. And luckily we backed up the truck. You know, I mean, we, we went up to 10% in any one company. So the, the four big ones I mentioned, we, we have the full 10% in there uh, uh, of the fund size, right? Of the, you know, up to four and a half million in that fund. Um, and then fund four, it was really like 30, 70, to be honest with you, was the ratio. And so our idea is if you're going to write the check, write it with conviction and courage, get in there and try to get the ownership that you want, find opportunities to buy up more ownership before the A round even hits. I can't tell you how many times, you know, starting even in fund two, I remember, you know, Alex from security scorecard came to me and said, Hey, Elliot, Ed, I got my first two customers. I need to hire some customer success people some onboarding folks, but if I hire them, my burn rate drops down in six months. And we're like, hey, why don't we just give you kind of a note right now at a higher price in the last round? And you don't have to go raise money. It's done. Like literally I have it done for you the next day or two. He's like, yes, let's do that. And it was a win-win. He got a higher price. We got a little bit more ownership. Uh, and now it's, you know, they've raised their last round. It's close to being a unicorn right now on that one. But we took that model and the lessons we learned from that. And, you know, if you have that close relationship with the founder of trust, if you try not, you know, if you try to create the right value opportunity for both of you, um, I would say that in fund three, we're able to do that in half our companies. And fund four, we've done that in half our companies as well, where the founder's like, you know what? I wouldn't mind taking an extra couple million dollars right now um, at a higher price. So I can hire a few more people so I can go faster. And what that results in, Samir, is that if you look at kind of the fund four companies right now and the Series A rounds, our Series A rounds that, you, that have been announced so far that you can see in the tech round are 15 to $20 million A rounds which would also mean the valuation they have, as you can imagine, uh, we have the valuations to boot. So we've given our founders a little bit more runway to go a little faster, to raise a bigger war chest for their A round, and everyone's happy. That's great. And we're going to touch on a few things in terms of today's competitive market and how you work with founders versus others. <laughs> you know, you mentioned four companies, for example, that are unicorns or near unicorns within the portfolio. Unicorns right now are mean a very different thing than they did five years ago. I mean, today there's 810 unicorns valued at $2.6 trillion. And of course, the fund math has changed because the average valuation of a seed round isn't three to four million like it used to be. When you look at these non-obvious opportunities, what are you underwriting to? How do you think about whether something is, number one, you, you know, let's say you mitigated the risk in your mind, but how do you ensure that you're getting compensated? Are you looking at each of these companies as essentially what I've thought about before? Is it a fund returner? Can it be a billion dollar company? Or have you recast how you think think about things given the current environment? We're doing the same thing. We're getting at the same, you know, stage, you know, and and maybe the entry point price has gone up slightly, you know, from fund four to fund five, and maybe it's gone up, you know, a lot more than fund three. But you know, our perspective is if you own enough in the right businesses that we underwrite towards fund returners, which in our minds are dragons. 
Um, I know people talk about unicorns, but you and I both know in our business that a dragon is a company that can return the whole fund. And then if you have a three-headed dragon or a 10-headed dragon, that's wonderful. And based on fund size, you don't necessarily have to have a unicorn to have a dragon, right? Because if you own enough of something that's worth 600 or 700 or 800, you still can return the whole fund. So our perspective are a couple of things. We get into the most trouble when we try to see a $20 billion market ahead of you know where it is. We, we love investing in category creators. So we just want to see what's right ahead of us. And I, I think you and I talked about this before. The biggest thing we need to remind ourselves is that the best founders that we partner with are technical. And they have an, a crazy ability to focus insanely on a narrow, narrow topic, which is the one user that's going to use your product. And that's all they obsess about is how do I make that one user's life 10 times better, 100 times better than you know, with my product and without. And if then they ask the question is, how can I get them to have a friend or a teammate use it? And, and a lot of those founders also have a hard time explaining then how to zoom out, right? So zooming out and saying, hey, this is what the market opportunity can be. But the best founders we have are the ones that can do, do a little both. And when you're creating new categories, it's so unclear what that zoom out looks like. And I'll give you an example. In Sneak's case, it was, I'm going to be the best developer-friendly security platform starting with open source. And everyone thought the market wasn't big enough. We asked, then asked the question is, let's zoom out for a little bit. Well, at the time, there's you know, 10 million developers. We think there's going to be 30 or 40 million developers in five or six years. So I think every one of those developers could use it. Is there a Gartner you know, magic quadrant for that? No. Is there like research for it? No, but there's intuitive. So you have to have a gut feeling for that. So we're like, look, if this founder can nail that insertion point, I think they can add a lot more. I mean, in Sneak's case, they've added five other product lines, made a couple of acquisitions, and the attach rate is off the charts. So I like to say that we need to make sure that it's not the TAM that a founder starts with, it's a TAM that they exit with. And you know, I like to ask the question, you know, three to five years from now, founder, if everything went according to plan, where does this fit in the industry? Where does this fit in the day of life of a company, of a user? And just just dream with me for a little bit. I want, I want to dream big. And then, then you're like, okay, great, let's stop. Let's go back to how you're going to get customer one, how you're going to get customer number two, how you can make them really happy. So that that's the balance of things that we've learned over time. And if things were so obvious, Samir, they would they shouldn't be working with both stars. They should be working with Andreessen or Sequoia or someone else because they have the checkbooks to come in on the obvious. We have to fund it when it's not obvious to them because otherwise, you know, I'm not going to be competing with them. I don't want to be writing checks next to their $20 million under management, to be honest with you. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I do think a lot of what you do is peer in the future and figure out what is the world going to look like ahead. And, and oftentimes those things are not obvious in terms of the type of companies that are being built today. It's certainly why I think sometimes things like TAM analysis at the early stages is probably overused or relied on too heavily as part of a decision-making process within a seed stage company. But when we think about just broad trends for a second, and today there's over 2,000 seed funds. Back when you started, there was probably closer to 100. And I know you're talking to your LPs tomorrow during your annual meeting, but when they ask, Ed, how do you compete? And maybe this is more broadly for, for all seed funds, is how do you maintain a return profile that looks like seed, which most expect a three to five X plus return in a market that has so many participants? Man, that, that is a great question and something that we think about a lot. And I think a couple of things. One is the answer I have literally looked at my deck is stay in your swim lane. 
like what is the swim lane that you chose and and why are founders partnering with you the swim lane that we chose is not pre-seed or seed or anything else it's called day one it's company formation and that's why i use that stat where i go from 75 percent to 82 percent in terms of company formation and you know that takes a special kind of you know breed of of you know firm to go in and not only you know place the bets at those stages but also build the team to work around and help accelerate that path to success. So in our case, we built operating partners. We brought on Natalie Ledbetter, who's you know head of people and talent. She's not a recruiter. She was an operator. She was at Stash, which is a fintech company in New York that is you know unicorn status. She helped scale that from seven to 300 people as head of people. So she comes in. And if we believe that capital is not the constraint for the best companies, it's, it's human capital. She comes in and helps them do everything from set up their ETS system, Help them set up a real interview process, you know, that can actually uh, achieve the goals of finding the right person, but do it at speed. And then third is she actually does bring people to the table. And I can't tell you how many times that she's brought some amazing talent to the portfolio. We had we initially brought on a founder in residence, Ellen Chisa, who was the former CEO of one of our uh, developer infra companies called Dark. And she came in as founder in residence, and she's a product guru. She's really amazing at that developer experience, going from zero to one, and now she's making investments for us as well. And has that really great founder relationship. And we also brought on Ad Gupta, who's VP of Ops uh, for us. He's a partner. He's, he's he's a partner, you know, an operating partner for us now, but was VP of Ops and Strategy customer, right? And so, and you can see that whole portfolio company linkage. And before that, he was an Uber, so he knows what scaling, what, what what issues startups face when they're scaling from a team perspective, from an ops perspective. So he comes and helps. And we're going to add more and more along those lines. So that's our swim lane. And then what we say is like, look, let's. Also, your fund size, your strategy, let's not raise so much. I don't think a $400 million fund is a seed fund like all of our brethren who are at the top firms have raised, and it's not seed. And so have your fund size be appropriate for the team that you have to write those checks so that you can move the needle with the right with the right company. So I think that is the most important part for us is not kind of deviating from what we do. And frankly, I mean, everyone wants to go first. You know, it's it's like famous Talladega Nights line, if you're not first, you're last. And, you know, if you don't get on the cap table early, what happens is that firms like ours have opportunity funds that back the truck up all the way through to exit. And so it gets harder and harder for a new person to get on the cap table and get the ownership that they want because everyone's got an opt fund now and everyone backs the truck, truck up. So everyone's going early, but they're still not going to the stage that we are consistently like we are with the team that we have to help them kind of get to the next point. Well, first of all, I will I will say without any equivocation, this is the first Ricky Bobby reference we've ever had on the <laughs> podcast. So congrats on that. You know, again, we've talked about like just the experience that you've had and it's, you know, it stemmed across really two down cycles, you know, 99, 2000. And then again, in 08, 09, I went through those times. Over the last 11 years, we've been up and to the right. And there are a lot of funds that are run by people that have actually never invested in the downturn. And right now, the train doesn't appear to be stopping. And there's so many macro reasons that appears to be the case. How do you view the market overall? Because it seems like you have to hold two different thoughts in mind. One is technology innovation is really in the early stages and has become has gone from being vertical and a fringe type of thing within the world to being completely horizontal where technology is now affecting every single industry in the world. On the other hand, you think about the supply of capital that's coming in and the amount that's being put into pretty much every asset category and technology is no different. 
and the valuations have gone up. And a lot of these companies will never meet the valuations based on fundamentals. Where's your head at right now in terms of investing? Where do you think we are in terms of a cycle? And if I were to ask you to effectively pull out the crystal ball and peer forward maybe two, three, four years, how are you thinking about it? And how is that instructing how you run the firm right now? Yeah, so the way I think about it is that I've been through these cycles and I've seen them. I would say that on the positive side, in the 25 years of doing this, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. When COVID hit in March and we shut everything down, I actually wrote a, a long tweet about kind of what founders should do before Sequoia's memo came out. Um, but I slowed things down and, and everything else just because that was the experience that I had. I've been through, I've been interim CEO companies. I had to fire people before. It's horrible, really, really horrible. Th those are experiences. And the one thing I can say is that little did I know coming out of this you know, cycle and we're kind of going through kind of this new choppy waters now. I mean, the revenue, let's not talk about the valuation, the revenue and lots of our companies in the infrastructure side have, have just scaled enormously. Who could have ever known? And why is that the case? It's the case because look at kind of how we are buying things. If you go to like Instacart or DoorDash or whatever, there's still underlying infrastructure behind it. There's developers cranking away. There's customer success software. I mean, we're just becoming more and more reliant on kind of our, you know, living digitally right now, um, even when we get back in person. I mean, a lot of this will not go away. Maybe it's accelerated, but we're still going to have that 30% lift. What are people spending their money on? Well, more developers, developer productivity, security. Are you kidding me? If you look at the next 10 years from now, cybersecurity is going to be the next battleground for war. I mean, we have nation states coming in now. I mean, this is serious, serious stuff. And then data. I like to say that when I invest in Green Palm, the one thing that was constant were three things. Well, actually, three things. One is death, taxes, and the growth of data. And so you look at those areas, those, why is Snowflake growing so big? And final piece is you add all that up together. Are the multiples much higher and you're looking at five, 10-year growth? Yeah, absolutely. They're definitely kind of way ahead of the curve right now. But the underlying fundamentals of, of investing you know, on the enterprise side in real businesses, solving real problems at orders of magnitude better than they had before, that is not going away. So if I put my crystal ball out, the IT spending continues to scale over the next five, you know, seven, eight years. I think valuations, yeah, they could be 25% too high right now or even more. Irrespective of if people are paying up 25 to 30% more today, if the company is growing 50 to 100% year over year, you're still going to increase the value one year from now. And I, and I don't see that slowing down for the best companies that are out there. And then final thing is you add is all the pressure coming in. I mean, if you look at the amount of money sitting in the public markets uh, versus the private markets, it, you're still talking about a minuscule sliver of a percentage that is in the private markets relative to the public markets. And you know, Samir, all that money is coming downstream. When the T-Rail prices, the Franklin Temple, when I'm talking to Franklin Templeton and T-Rail Price and, and others, then you know that we're in a, a unique cycle in history, you know, um, because People want to go back to my Ricky Bobby quote a little bit earlier, because value these. If you hit it right, these companies can grow faster than ever. So that is my bullish bull case scenario. I do think we're probably inflated 25, 30%, but I don't think it's going to slow down for the next five years if you solve real problems. I can't speak to the consumer side because I don't understand that at all. I'm a happy user of many of these services, <laughs> but I can't speak to that. But I can speak to kind of what I've been doing for 25 years, and I don't see it kind of just blowing up overnight. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I share a lot of your optimism. And, you know, I'm also a capital markets guy, having worked within banking for so long and 
a lot of what we've done in the past is figure out ways to mitigate risk. And I, I do think the it is harder to underwrite to the art of possible. And I think the art of possible, what these companies can become, is far different than what we saw before. A $10 billion tech company 10 years ago was almost unheard of. And now you are seeing those companies achieve those type of valuations in the private markets. And you're right, the private markets are a small fraction of the public markets. I think the public mar- U.S. public markets total $47 trillion. The amount that might go into the private markets in terms of technology, life sciences companies is, you know, four or $500 billion, right? So it's a small fraction of it. A lot of it, of course, is because the elongation of how long companies stay private and the importance of generating alpha. If you're generating an alpha investing in tech, you kind of have to dip into the private markets. So I don't think that changes. The one thing I do worry about, and we've seen this before, if, for example, an event like March of 2020 happens, but it's more of a less of a two-month transient event versus a multi-year economic recession, what ends up happening is a lot of capital comes off the table in terms of investing in funds, which then affects late stage capital, affects early stage capital. Are there things that you're concerned about with companies maybe not being prepared for a different type of capital market? And of course, the Sequoia memo came out. But are there things that help companies in your mind be more resilient toward what might be a very different capital future? I can tell you this. Look, most of the enterprise companies we invest in, what we love are are highly uh, efficient sales and marketing motions. So, you know, when you're looking at PLG or product-led growth, when you're looking at kind of the open source developer first motion, you get a lot of predictability into what comes into the funnel and how that transitions down. So I would just say that a lot of these companies, when you look at SaaS, when you look at net retention above 130%, there's a lot of wonderful things where you can actually control the dials in your business. And, you know, I think the point really is, Samir, is that the other wonderful thing about a lot of these companies is that the sales cycle is maybe six months or less versus 12 months or more. And the reason why that's important is because when you're investing 12 months ahead of time, you're scraping the crap out of your sales team right now, and you don't know if they're going to deliver money back. And that's when you get in trouble because you're spending way ahead. Because you know when you add one rep at 1.25 to 1.5 million quota, um, 12 months ahead, you've got to start hiring today for 12 months from now. When the sales cycles are three months or six months, it's easier to pull the brakes back when things happen. So I just think with the types of businesses that we're funding today and the efficiency of lots of them, you know, that you can really slow things down very quickly and, you know, mine the existing customer base, for example, to, you know, withstand the storm. And frankly, you know, those who have capital then I think will be in the best position, you know, if, if things kind of go sour to build the best companies to keep investing and maybe even buy up some more ownership. But, you know, I, I just can't see with all the pressure and the money coming in these days kind of how that slows down in the next few years. I mean, it has to be something really, really bad. And I thought COVID was it. I really did. But within three months, things turned around pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. And I did think at the beginning of COVID, we were in for some really rough times. And one thing it did do for a lot of VCs is force them, especially ones that hadn't been through a downturn before, to go through a complete thought exercise with their existing portfolios, figuring out which companies were low on cash, thinking about how to help those companies weather through storms. And it became more of a triage exercise than just going out and finding new deals. It did remind me of asking you, how do you think about durability of a franchise across cycles? And what are some of the non-obvious things that are required of a venture capitalist 
that don't necessarily make the normal headlines, i.e. investing in a great company, seeing that company emerge. Can you maybe share some insight on some of the things that are toughest to get right? I would say the first is the firm ethos. You have to have a partner that you trust 1,000% with your life, basically. And that happens. And if you don't do that, if it sounds good on paper, but you haven't kind of test battle tested that out, I just think that can kill you. The one rule that Elliot and I had, and I can just tell from all the time we spent together, when we started Bullet Start was no assholes allowed. We said life is too short for assholes anywhere, you know, and I could even use more colorful language, but I won't. But the whole point is that I don't want them as LPs. I don't want them as founders. I don't want to answer the call at midnight or two in the morning or whatever that time may be if I don't like the person and actually don't respect the values of that person. So I think you have to start with the value uh, of kind of who you are, why you are, and why you're doing it. I would say two is, is that you also have to peer into the crystal ball and say, okay, let's just say it's going to be painful for the next three years. I mean, Simi, you talk about this all the time, how painful it is for first-time founders uh, as, as, an, as managers to raise capital. Yeah, you're investing out of your own pocket. You're not taking salary. You know, this is a mission. Just the way that our founders have to be passionate, you have to love what you're doing and, and sit down with your significant other, whether it's your wife or your girlfriend or whoever that might be, and say, just want you to know, you know, should I be doing this? In my case, I feel very fortunate because my wife, Kathy, who I've been with since 1994, uh, told me, and she said, Ed, I know you got offered this amazing job that gets a cushy pay you know, with this West Coast firm, but you would be absolutely miserable. I'd rather you not be miserable and start your own thing with and not knowing how they'll succeed than you being miserable working as one of 12 partners, you know, traveling back and forth and trying to deal with politics. So that, that was kind of, I would say those are the most important things. And it's more of the soft things I would tell you, Samir, that matter the most when you get started. And the final thing was, you know, just you know, Elliot and I have, have, you know, our vision, we feel like we've been consistent with what we've, what we've wanted to do. Um, so just make sure that you're really aligned with kind of the, the vision, you know, day one, technical founders, you know, take as much risk as possible and move as fast as possible. And those are the things that were kind of our firm, firm is built. And I'm sure every firm has a story. Every successful firm has a story about how they built their, you know, kind of business around three or four kind of values. And rarely is it a linear sort of thing where, you know, you start off with something and then you build in a linear fashion. You have you have definitely not done that. But what has struck me during the course of this conversation, everything I know about you and Bull Start, is that you have stayed within a swim lane. You decided early on what type of firm you wanted to be when you grew up and nothing's really actually deviated. And a lot of the great firms continue to do that. The um, thing that you had mentioned earlier and I do want to just double click on that before we move on to our final segment, is that in 2010, you had the opportunity to join other firms. And there was probably a checklist in your mind of things that really led you to do something for yourself. As you and I both probably talked to a lot of people that are considering, they have offers from firms where they can join and all they have to do is invest. And then in door number two, it's you start your own firm, you have to build an ethos. It's really going to suck financially and the time over the you know over the first few years, and there's a lot of risk embedded. What are the things that a manager needs to check off before they actually go and and start a firm on their own versus actually going in and doing the easier route of of just joining an established firm? Why are you in in it? You know why why are you doing this right? And 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 for me and for Elliot, it was we, we were doing it because it's fun. I did not want to wake up feeling like I was working for someone. 
that that's what you end up doing. If you become one partner out of 12, look, you're not the founder of that firm. You're going to be working for someone. And, and it, that's okay. You know, but, and then two is what is the decision-making process to get a deal done? You know, I felt that Elliot and I were in sync with the instincts that we had about how fast you have to move. I can't tell you how many deals we've taken down over the weekend, doing meeting someone on a Friday, doing diligence Saturday, Sunday, and dropping a term sheet on a Monday. You've got to move with speed. And that is, you're not going to do it if you feel like it's work. We're doing it because we love it. I mean, it's just, it's fun to us. So I think for, for me and what my, what my wife knew about me was that, hey, Ed, like you'd be miserable. Like you, you'd, deal, you'd spend half your time doing things that are adding zero value. You know, there's a lot of politics. You know, I, I don't want to talk down to any, you know, any of these folks because if you started those firms, God bless you, right? Because you do really well. Yeah, you don't have to deal with those things. But for us, I felt like there was really no choice, right? It was kind of, you know, and, and, I, and I don't feel like this is work. I feel like this is, I feel blessed and fortunate that I get to do this every day and meet cool new founders and they get to pick us, you know, to work with them and partner with them. That That's, that's why, but I got to tell you this, Samir, it was painful as hell. There are times when Kathy is like, Hey, can I pay our babysitter? Because, you know, I, I she didn't know if there was cash in the bank account. I mean, I, I won't be kidding, kidding you on that. I mean, that, that was, there were some hard times for the first few years, you know, dealing with, you know, two kids in private school, a mortgage um, and zero salary. So you have to be willing to go through that with your partner to, to make it go. And, which means you're doing it for the right reasons because you really freaking love partnering with founders and doing this. There are some sacrifices, but it it does go to this mentality. A lot of folks have, including myself and a lot of other founders where some people are just terrible employees, but they're great employers. And, you know, starting something, the sacrifice is worth it. So totally get it. I know that's why you did it. (laughs) We've talked about it at Nauseam as well. So I'm really excited for you. Yeah, thanks. And uh, it's been an enjoyable process so far. Not one that's easy, but certainly one that has been enriching and has been a great learning journey in the early early days, but one that will have twists and turns, but it's something that we're passionate about. And like you, I'm so fortunate to have a thoughtful and supportive wife, which of course, as you know, is is incredibly critical in these types of businesses. I can tell through your podcast, I've listened to some of them, just how passionate you are about the nuances of the business, and that will carry you all the way through. It's it's an enjoyable thing, as you and I know, it's not work. We've seen so much changes. I think both of us are pretty curious, too. And so seeing what's going to happen and try to think through all of the things that are currently happening are actually quite fun. Speaking of, I, I want to go through a succession of three rapid-fire questions, starting off with 25 years in, what's the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned about being a venture capitalist? I mean, I just told you that earlier that I was told not to be friends with your founders, which I think is the complete opposite, uh, to be honest with you. And I, the other thing is, is, is listen to your LPs on business strategy would be the other thing I can tell you, because there are so many things we we're told not to do. Um, and we did anyway. I can rattle them off. I mean, why are you starting a specialized seed fund out of New York doing enterprise? Why are you investing in companies outside of New York? You know, why are you taking so much risk by, you know, writing those checks so early? Why are you taking board seats? Why are you staying on the board seats to the end? How do you kind of manage kind of all your time? And guess what? It's not that we didn't listen to the LPs. It's more that we listened to our customers who are the founders. And what we found, for example, was that if you get off the boards very early, that there's always this dichotomy. I can tell you that Series A firms and multi-stage firms know how to do something really well. And that is scale the crap out of a business at product market fit. What they're less kind of uh, very good at is coming in and helping founders discover product market fit. And where you have trouble is when the round is early and the founder hasn't discovered product market fit. 
And then the A firm is like, let's scale revenue. And you hire all these salespeople and you're just kind of brute forcing sales, but there's no flywheel being built. I can tell you, I've seen so many examples of companies going off the cliff. And we used to be like in, in fun too. We're like, hey, let's not be on the board. Let's hand it off because that A round firm, it's in better hands than the, with that other firm. But guess what? Those people have lots of things in their plate too. That check might be an $8 million check when they write $30 million check somewhere else. You know, they're not really paying attention to it. Maybe it doesn't match the strategy. So we found that by staying there as the consigliere, as being that kind of partner with that founder from day one, we can say, hey, you know what? He might want to not listen to all that advice there and maybe slow things down. The last thing that happened, which accrued value to us, was that, man, when you're sitting in that room at the Series E or F uh, on that board and you develop great relationships with all your downstream partners. Um, so, and that's another wonderful thing. You, you, they, they reach out to you and start asking questions. So I would say that's one thing that, that they said is like, how do you allocate your time, get off the boards? Going back to your, your point, which is not always taught, listen to your LPs, they run a different business model, run the business model that you obviously think is, is fit to provide the best value to the founders that you're going after that will in, in turn actually result in better returns. And so I love that. Don't get too married to legacy thinking or other people's business models, find the believers into what you're actually building. Speaking of investing, like you've worked with so many iconic founders now. They weren't iconic founders at the time you found them. Now, I think people will look back in history and say, wow, these people are incredible. Is there a founder that you've worked with throughout your investing career that kind of defined you a little bit as an investor where you just learned something that was like the aha, come to Jesus moment of who you were? You know, it's funny, like I have a very good relationship uh, with Scott Yara. Scott Yara uh, was the founder of Green, co-founder of Green Plum. He ended up uh, becoming co-president of Pivotal Software, which went public. And uh, now he's uh, off doing a lot of other wonderful things uh, as well in the industry, which hasn't been announced yet, but he's, he's working at some very impactful places. And I remember when I wrote that first check, when I was him and two other co-founders, there was no product built. This was like in 2001. And... Um, you know, 18 months into the company's life, we pivoted. He, he came to us and just said, hey, things aren't working out. Um, I think we need to try something else. And he's like, will you give us more capital? He goes, I'll write some more money next to, next to kind of what I'm doing. Fast forward, the company pivoted two other times just to survive. It ended up doing some services to scrape by and survive during that time period. We ended up buying a company called Dedera, which was an open source kind of caching software for, for database caching. And then that was the birth of Green Plum. You know, on that final time when we wrote the check into Green Plum, we weren't sure if we wanted to write it. He flew out to uh, New York on a moment's notice and said, hey, just want to let you know, I'm going to um, refinance my house. To, I believe in this so much, I'm going to refinance my house to put into this company. And we're like, okay, we're writing a check next to you. If you're doing that, we're writing a check literally right next to you on this thing. And fast forward, we ended up getting an amazing return on Green Plum. But, but that relationship uh, and the honesty with which kind of Scott, that, that relationship, the, the, give and, uh, the give and take, the honest relationship of a founder, like forget about all the bullshit, the true relationship with the founder, getting to know him, you know, his family and everything, and just kind of going through the hard times together. Because, you know, it's not like my firm was on the map either at the time. You know, we took a bet on each other. And I think the best relationships, like the one I had with Scott, was betting on each other. I trust you, Ed. You trust me. Let's do this together. Let's try to win this together. And we're nobodies. We are nobodies on this. Let's just try to do this thing together. And, and I I can't tell you, he invited me to the IPO for Pivotal and just kind of being there and just seeing him and seeing all the people there and, and the customers. I couldn't have been more happy for him because he, he, he took some massive, massive bets to get to where he was. 
and that joy that I had and just kind of that relationship is what I try to find in, in, in something I work with every founder. Like, can we have that connectivity together? Yeah, well, that speaks to uh, not always thinking about this old way of thinking of don't be friends with your founders. In fact, in this case, you not only was it a great exit, but the actual journey was so much more interesting to be a part of. And so I do feel like a lot of that time, a lot of times people actually miss that. For my life, for example, being on a journey with somebody is more important than the actual exit in some cases. And the more you do that, those, and you have a process, you will get those exits and the things will happen as a, as a byproduct in many cases of those relationships. Man, you just nailed it. Enjoy the journey. Yeah, yeah. Really do. Oh, by the way, the, the last thing I was going to say is I spent September 11th with them. So we had the board meeting on September 12th. I'd flown out to LA and, you know, we were tweeting about this this past, um, you know, September 11th. Uh, and I was there with them and we just stopped the board meeting when, when we realized what was really going on. And I was there with them from Tuesday until Saturday and spent every second with them trying to help me track down my friends in New York. And that's another thing is just that, man, just never, never forget kind of that time together and just kind of how we bonded together and kind of went through that. So that was the other aspect is this deep kind of, you know, relationship uh, with, with, with that team. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Speaking about relationships, I mean, moving from the founders to the investors and the investors that you've worked with, is there an investor out there that's been particularly impactive to you and has caused a pivotal change or a pivotal has been pivotal in, in how you think about investing itself? I wouldn't say there's any one person, but to be honest with you, um, you know, Bob Lesson uh, was my mentor. He, um, he was at the time when I partnered with him in 1998 for Don Treader was the only East coast angel. He was the only angel on the East coast. He had put 15 million of his own capital into, into startups all at the very kind of beginnings of company formation. He had an incredible network. He, um, you know, was vice chairman Smith, uh, at, at Morgan Stanley before that. He was the head of the bank and he, 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 he bet on me. He goes, Ed, that business will come run my firm. He goes, you know, the internet, you know, technology better than anyone else. He goes, I don't care if you're 25, 26 years old. He goes, that is the right age to be doing this. And he believed in me before maybe I even, I believed in myself. And, um, I learned so much from him and his son, Sam is uh, running slow ventures these days. And I remember Sam used to sit in our partner meetings on Saturdays when he was like 11 or 12 at his house. Uh, so I just, I, I will never forget Bob. He unfortunately had passed away, but he was my mentor. And, you know, I feel like he took a big risk on me and, you know, gave me the opportunity to really step up, um, even though I was young. And that has given me kind of the foundation to do that for others as well. Yeah. Ed, this has been a lot of fun. And if, People could see, I could see your t-shirt and it says no bowl on it. <laughs> and this has been a indicative of this conversation. Highly transparent. Thanks so much for sharing the insights and being on the show. Hey, Samir, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, your, your questions were so deep, man. I just, uh, it, it pulled out the, uh, the best in me, you know, so thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlock. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ed. To learn more about him or Bolster, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button 
in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.